0: According to our calendar, it is still October, and Halloween is still approaching. That means we are still continuing our Halloween theme of exploring various fantastic beasts and terrors. And we are still limiting ourselves to monsters whose names begin with W. If you're wondering why, go back and listen to last week's episode about the Wendigo. Just don't expect the explanation to be particularly satisfying. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Wyvern We here at the Word of the Week must admit to a certain level of pedantry. We are undeniably concerned with details and minutiae, and quibbling over said details. In fact, given that we collectively spend as many hours as a part-time job preparing this podcast and the braggadocio inherent in that exercise... The word of the week is just one big pile of pedagogy. What does that mean? It means we like showing off how much pointless minor knowledge we've managed to stuff into our craniums. Pedantry and pedagogy are both related words, thematically and etymologically. Thematically, they both refer to being overly interested in minor details of little actual importance and they are both associated with showing off one's knowledge. Etymologically, they are both derived from the same Greek roots. Paidos, meaning child, and agagos, meaning leader or supervisor. In Greek, the word "paidagogos" refers to a slave who was charged with the care of a child. When the word was absorbed into Latin, it changed from a child's supervisor and caretaker to a teacher of children. And that, is how it found its way into the French as pedagogue, a teacher. But around about the 1600s, the word picked up some negative associations. Specifically, it came to refer to an overly formal and overly dogmatic teacher. And that connotation may have gained popular traction due to British naval administrator Samuel Pepys, whose diary was the most famous diary in England. At least until Bridget Jones. But Pepys had more in common with Forrest Gump than Rene Zellweger. Samuel Pepys was born in 1633 to a London tailor and was of unremarkable birth and parentage. Despite that, he rose to become one of the most important men in Britain in the 1600s. He was a member of parliament. He served as England's first secretary of the admiralty. He was confidant and personal secretary to both Charles II and James II. And he was the president of the Royal Society and personally accepted for publication Sir Isaac Newton's seminal work, Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica. But none of that is what made him famous. What made him famous is that he started keeping a diary while at university, and he wrote daily for pretty much the entirety of his life. As a result, he provided one of the most complete records of the social, cultural, political, and historical events of the English Restoration, in which the English, Scottish, and Irish monarchies were restored following a lot of very complicated political turmoil and major cultural changes in England. The Restoration laid the groundwork for the glorious or bloodless revolution, which we've discussed before on the show. But we digress. The point we wanted to make is that we're a bunch of pedantic pedagogues who like bickering over tiny details and showing off how much we know about very minor, very esoteric things. But even we have our limits. For example, when we started researching this episode... The word is wyvern, in case you have understandably forgotten. When we started researching this episode, we were put off by the number of articles and videos on the internet arguing about whether George R.R. Martin's dragons in his Song of Ice and Fire series are really dragons, or whether he got it wrong, and they're actually wyverns. The correct answer, of course, is that they are dragons because Martin says they are dragons and it's his universe, and he can define completely non-existent creatures however he'd like. And as silly as we think the argument is, we have to admit a few things. First, Martin himself acknowledged that his dragons looked like wyverns. Second, Martin explained that he had a very good reason for making his dragons look like wyverns. Third, the one key detail that has created all of the arguments, the one that Martin himself acknowledged with good reason, is actually the detail that led to the invention of the wyvern. And interestingly enough, the mess is rooted in something that is totally unrelated to the monsters themselves, and yet is something else Martin makes a big deal about. So let's disentangle this whole story. First, let's start by defining the wyvern. A wyvern is a giant, serpentine, flying monster. It's a lot like a dragon. And while features vary from depiction to depiction, most wyverns have some common traits. Wyverns are generally very serpentine, with long, sinuous bodies, long necks, and long tails. Wyverns generally have barbed or spiked tails. And, unlike dragons, Wyverns only have four limbs. Now we know what you're thinking. Most dragons, the western ones at least, have four limbs. Two in the front, two in the back, right? Well, not quite. Because you're not counting the wings. Wings are limbs. And the story of the wing is the story of the limb. In case you somehow don't know, a limb, biologically speaking, is a very complex collection of multiple bones connected by muscles and tendons that sticks off a living thing. Arms, legs, flippers, prehensile tails, and wings are all limbs. And they have a complicated history. Until about 380 million years ago, limbs didn't exist at all. At that time, if you were around, you lived in the ocean. And if you happened to be a fish, the best way you had to get around was with fins. Now, fins are simple little things. Basically, you have a few slender rib-like bones with a thin membrane between them to create a sail-like appendage. You can wave it around and propel yourself forward. that's about all you could do. And then... The Lobe Fins Evolved Lobe fins were fish whose fins were a little more complicated. The bones inside were bifurcated, they branched. And that allowed for a little more complex movement. And that changed everything. Within a few million years, there appeared a species of fish known as Tiktaalik rosea whose lobed fins were just complicated enough that it could actually drag itself out of the water and crawl along the coastal wetlands. It couldn't walk exactly, but it was getting there. And it had rudimentary structures that would grow into wrist and ankle bones. Over time, those limbs, four of them, would continue to evolve and specialize. And the lobe fins were so successful that they became the template on which all vertebrates, creatures with backbones, would be based. And that is why, today, if a vertebrate, which includes birds, reptiles, and mammals, if a vertebrate has limbs, it's got four of them. Now the journey from limb to wing is even more complicated, and there's still a lot that we're very unclear on about how wings might have evolved. It doesn't help that wings have evolved differently in different classes of animals. Winged mammals, like bats, have leathery membranes, whereas birds have feathery wings. And bird wings themselves are a ridiculously complicated marvel of biological engineering. As are their feathers. A bird feather consists of a central vein structure from which hundreds of filaments sprout in a flat sheet. Those filaments, called barbs, are covered with microscopic hook-like protrusions and tiny grooves. These hooks and grooves lock together like velcro, so that the feathers form a lightweight, flat sheet. As complicated as feathers are, though, ornithologists like Yale University's Richard Prum are discovering how they are genetically similar to reptile scales. In point of fact, many birds have both scales and feathers. A chicken's legs, for example, are covered with reptilian scales and it now appears that some of the dinosaurs in the late Cretaceous period may have had rudimentary fluffy feathers. Those feathers lacked the interlocking structure though that was required to make the flat aerodynamic sheets that would allow birds to fly. The point is that wings and arms are basically cousins, and if you look at the underlying bone structures you can see the similarities. Like human arms, Bird wings consist of an upper arm, known as the humerus, and a pair of bones in the lower limb, known as the ulna and the radius. And there is a collection of smaller, more complicated wrist bones and smaller protrusions akin to fingers. But dragons and wyverns don't have feathery bird wings. Except for the coadal, of course. But that's another story for another time. Dragons and their ilk are generally depicted with leathery wings like those of bats. And the skeletal structure of bat wings is much more similar to human arms. In fact, bats are part of the order chiroptera, which is Greek for hand wing. If you look at the bones of a bat's wing, you'll find the same upper and lower arm bone structure. But moreover, you'll find actual fingers, long skinny finger bones projecting from the rib and hand structure. Those fingers are what support the patagium the very thin membrane of skin that stretches between them. In fact, bat wings are much more flexible than bird wings. Bats generally have one claw-like finger separate from their wing fingers. And that claw allows them to use their wings like forelegs crawling around on all fours. It also allows them to grip surfaces and hang. And some bats can even use their dexterous wings to snare insects or stun them. Bats are also similar to another type of winged creature. One with a complex hand structure supporting a membranous wing. One that went extinct long ago. Specifically, one that went extinct with the dinosaurs it shared the world with, though it was not, itself, a dinosaur. We're talking about the pterosaur. The pterosaur is a class of reptile whose name means flying lizard. They are the earliest species of vertebrate on Earth to have evolved the ability for powered flight. Powered flight, by the way, refers to the creature being able to propel itself through the air, rather than merely gliding on air currents. The difference is best summed up in the Pixar film Toy Story, where in living cowboy action figure Woody admonishes the space toy Buzz Lightyear that he isn't flying, he's just falling with style. But we digress. The pterosaur includes many different species of flying reptile that were not descended from the sauropods and the ornithopods that gave rise to the dinosaurs. They lived from 230 million years ago to 65 million years ago. Species varied greatly in size and anatomy, but most had elongated skulls, toothy jaws, and tail structures. And they also had membranous wings. But unlike bats, with one prominent finger claw and elongated finger ribs supporting their wings. Pterosaurs had several finger claws, and only a single elongated finger supported their wings. Regardless of whether you're looking at a bat or a pterosaur, it's easy to see the similarities between their membranous wings and those of Martin's dragons. Especially if you watch the HBO live-action series based on his books. Daenerys Targaryen's three pet dragons, all sport-powerful rear legs, membranous wings, and little clawed hands at the main joints of their wings. And Martin, in an interview, explained why he made that choice. He observed that on Earth, pretty much every vertebrate that has limbs has four of them. If it's got wings, it doesn't have arms or forelegs. And Martin's desire to ground his fantasy series in the real world as much as possible is well documented. And we'd give him kudos for his keen sense of the biological if not for one mistake. He used bat wings, with one finger claw and several finger ribs, instead of winged reptile wings, with several finger claws and one finger rib. But now we're just being pedantic. But what has all of this to do with the wyvern? Are we ever going to get around to the history of the wyvern and all the neat myths and legends about these creatures that are definitely not dragons? In a word, nope. Because wyverns haven't got neat myths and legends. Because the truth is, for all that we might want to argue that the wyvern and the dragon are distinct creatures, the fact is, the wyvern is basically just a misdrawn dragon. And no one cared very much until the 16th century, when a group of very pedantic nitpickers suddenly made a big deal about it. First of all, the word wyvern comes to us by way of the French wyver, which itself comes from the Latin word vipera, which means viper or snake. But the name didn't much matter before the aforementioned sudden nitpicking in the 16th century. The story of the Wyvern actually starts well before the 16th century. It starts with armor. Consider what happened at the Battle of Hastings in 1066 CE. That was the battle in which William the Conqueror led his Norman army in the conquest of England. During the battle, a rumor had spread amongst the Normans that William had been killed in battle. But William came forth, removed his helmet, and proved that he was still alive. Easy, right? Well, by the 1200s, armor had become a lot more complicated. A mounted knight couldn't simply pop off their helmet. They needed the help of a squire, even a team of squires, to get strapped into the one-man tank that was a suit of battle armor and get astride a horse. And once suited, one knight or lord looked pretty much like any other. In the heat of the battle, it was easy to lose track of who was who. Everyone just looked like a tin can. Thus, soldiers didn't know who to follow. And battle standards, flags and banners, which had once served the purpose of identifying the sides in a battle since the Bronze Age, just weren't cutting it. So knights started relying on emblems. That is to say, they would paint patterns on their shields or their surcoats to identify themselves to their followers. A surcoat, by the way, is a tunic draped over one's armor. And that was how heraldry was born in Europe in the 1100s. In theory. See, some scholars have disputed parts of this history. They've noted that most knights had no followers at all. Knights were not leaders. They were mounted soldiers who followed a feudal lord into battle. Most lords were required to provide at most two knights to serve in times of war and as few as half a knight per holding. Single knights had no bands of followers, and thus had no one to identify themselves to. Thus, some historians have argued that heraldry actually has its roots in personal vanity, more than the need for identification. But that doesn't matter. Around 1150 CE, the first heraldic devices appeared in the European record. The first coat of arms. In fact, the original meaning of coat of arms is a coat worn over armor. After King Henry I of England gifted his son-in-law with a blue shield bearing four gold lions in 1127 CE, two other ideas took root. First, the idea of emblazoning a shield rather than a surcoat with a heraldic device. Second, the idea of a coat of arms being passed down along family lines because family lineage and honor played a big role in feudal Europe, heraldry quickly caught on not just as personal identification, but family identification as well. All of this said, it should be noted that the true origins of heraldry are a bit fuzzy and indistinct. It seems to be a practice that gradually evolved across Europe between 1100 and 1200 CE. Heraldry is a complex field. We tend to think of it simply as painting symbols on your shield or armor so people know who you are. But it quickly became more complicated. A more accurate definition is the system by which coats of arms are designed, assigned, emblazoned, recorded, and regulated. And heraldry is overseen by royal officials known as heralds. And we have King Richard II of England to thank for most of the official legal mumbo-jumbo around heraldry. See, from the 13th century through the 14th century, as mounted knights played an increasingly large role in medieval warfare, see our episode about the paladin, heraldry was becoming more important. A knight's coat of arms represented his own honor and that of his family. A knight had to be recognizable on the battlefield because a knight's credibility and worth was measured entirely in his courage on the battlefield. And a knight had to be recognizable at tournaments to earn the respect of his liege. But Without any sort of regulation at all, knights could adopt whatever coats of arms they wished. In the late 14th century, a very famous dispute occurred when a landed lord named Scrope and a knight named Sir Robert Grosvenor showed up to a tournament wearing the same coat of arms and there was another knight who was later discovered to also have the same arms, a Cornish knight named Carmenau. Although the duplication was entirely accidental, when the case went before King Richard II, he ruled that the crown itself would assume jurisdiction over all coats of arms. Within fifty years, similar laws spread across other feudal nations in Europe. As with anything else, once the government is involved, everything gets more complicated and there's a lot more rules. Heraldry became more systematic. Heralds devised rules for what was and was not allowable on a coat of arms, and they developed a system for describing such emblems so they could be easily recorded. An officially recognized list of colors and textures was developed, as well as standards for what patterns and mixes of colors could be allowed. Some of these rules were entirely practical. Colors could only be paired with contrasting colors for ease of recognition at a distance. This is called the rule of tincture. Well, a simplified version of it. The rules of heraldry are extremely complicated and filled with very esoteric jargon. Over time, the coat of arms also became more complex. At a time when literacy was pretty rare, the coat of arms became an important way of identifying a family, marking property, and maintaining ownership records. Royal heralds would maintain lists of property known as rolls of arms and would mark such lists with a family's coat of arms. And as the coat of arms turned into a sort of officially recognized government issued identification card, the coats of arms themselves grew more and more complex. The shield bearing a pattern of colors and symbols that once represented the entire coat of arms became the centerpiece of the new coat of arms and other components were added. Atop the central shield or escutcheon bearing the distinguishing elements and symbols of the house was the helm and it represented feudal rank. A crest was added to the helm to further distinguish it. The mantle and the wreath were decorative elements added for flair to either side of the escutcheon holding it up ...were two figures known as supporters. And eventually, beneath the whole shebang, they added a motto. The motto might simply be the surname of the house... ...or it might be a phrase that represents the philosophy and ideals for which the house stood. And it was more or less during this period... ...while these rules were being developed, recorded, and embellished... ...that someone noticed that there were several different types of dragons on the emblems already in use... See, many of the older heraldic symbols were derived from old war banners, and some of those dragons bore a resemblance to the two-legged, winged serpent, or vipera, that had originally adorned the standards of the Roman legions centuries prior. And that, more or less, appears to be when the two-legged, two-winged, not-quite-a-dragon thing first got the name wyvern. And given that the Wyvern appears to be nothing more than a product of some very detailed nitpicking, as part of the development of a very complex and esoteric set of rules designed mainly to allow knights and nobles to brag about their honor and achievements, we have to admit, it's only fair that nowadays people are nitpicking the difference between dragons and wyverns in historical fantasy. And considering we're bragging about how much we know about all of this we can't really claim any moral high ground. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com.